Aloha, and welcome to the Ramgad Pod, the Realtors Association of Maui Government Affairs Director podcast. I am your host, Jason Economou, and I am here with Lori Suhako, Director of Housing and Human Concerns. Aloha, Lori. Good morning. Um, now, I just want to get started. Can you tell us a bit more about the Department of Housing and Human Concerns and what you do as director? Sure. The Department of Housing and Human Concerns is one of the biggest departments in the county. We have about 148 um, equivalent full-time employees. We have a very wide berth of services. So we have um, housing, which handles our Section 8 program, as well as our county housing programs. And then we have an Office on Aging that focuses on uh, frail and elderly people, as well as the disabled. We have Kaunoa Senior Services, with w which works also with uh, senior citizens, but more uh, those who can participate in activities more freely. We have Immigrant Services, which offers services to immigrants with um, uh, helping them get acclimated into the community. We also have a Grants Management Division that handles about 100 uh, county-issued grants and nonprofits in the community. We have um, two divisions that are staffed only by one person, Early Childhood uh, Resource as well as Volunteer Center. And let's see, what did I forget? We have a homeless division. So as director, um, how do you look after all of these different divisions and all these different employees? Oh, it's hard. Uh, you know, we have to really, um, I have a deputy, Linda Munsell, and between the two of us, we have to really look at the big picture. So um, our, like I said earlier, the breadth of the services that the department provides is huge. Um, so it requires um, really enabling the division heads who are responsible for each of those divisions, do what they do best. Um, and uh, a frequent check-in because so many issues, not just housing, for example, are at the forefront of what our community thinks is very important. So homelessness, for example. Um, so it's managing that big group of people, um, enabling the division heads to do what they need to do and to support the work that's being done um, in the trenches of the community. So it, it's, uh, it's juggling with this. <laughs> um, you know, you've had this job in the past, correct? I did. I did. Has it changed significantly since you were last director? Um, the biggest change has been the addition of the homeless division, I think, which was formed about two years ago. Um, but the job itself hasn't changed that much. I'm, I'm grateful to have had that experience because it makes um, my it, it makes my tenure a little bit easier because nothing comes as too much of a surprise. It's never boring. Uh, there's always something to do, and um, but I appreciate having had that that experience before. Yeah. So I want to go into your experience a little bit, but let's start before education, before jobs. Um, you told a story about growing up on Maui when I saw you at the Landlord Summit mm -hmm. um, and playing with Mike Molina. What, what was it like growing up on Maui? Oh. And how have you seen it change over the oh, years? Oh, yeah. So I grew up in Makawao. We were, um, Mike and I were actually neighbors and we played together in, um, in two mango trees in, in our backyard. Um, 
Makua was pretty much idyllic, you know, back then. It was the 1960s, and I tell a story about how one of my mom's friends used to r actually literally ride a horse into town and, um, and uh, tether his horse to the, to the fence outside, and how we, as kids, would go up to the horse Smokey and feed him. Um, it was an easier existence. Uh, we walked to school every morning. If we got into trouble, our parents knew about it before we got home. That it really was a small town. Um, so, it, you know, I go. It's really strange. I go to Makawa now, and in the old days, it was weird uh, to see somebody new. You know, somebody who was not familiar to me. Yeah. And now, when I go there, I never see anybody who's familiar to me. It's so rare to see somebody that I know. Really. Yeah. So it's changed a lot. What was your family like? Um, my mom was a barber in town, um, so, and she was very social. So my mother had a lot of friends, and you know, it's like kind of the barber slash bartender. She knew all the scoops about everybody. <laughs> um, so she was actually uh, the role model for me to become a social worker because she was always trying to help people and you know, help them problem solve and, you know, trying to figure out, well, who can I, who can I hook this person up to help them with this or that? So she, you know, she was kind of like a, a broker of services in town. Uh, she was my role model for doing what I do. That is really interesting. I've never really thought of um, the barber as, as a social worker, but, you know, everybody relates like bartenders to therapists. Mm -hmm. um, so, so yeah, there, there's an interesting relationship there. Yeah. Um, did you consider becoming a barber yourself? Um, no. Uh, I learned kind of early on that barbering probably wasn't going to be for me because I used to cut the hair off all my dolls, <laughs> expecting it to grow back. But instead, all I had was a bunch of bald-headed <laughs> dolls. So I thought, yeah, probably not You know, the best fit for me. Fair enough. Um, did you always want to get involved in government or was it is it purely just that you wanted to help people no you know when I was a um, when I was a young adult and going to college I really did think that I would go to law school and I would be an advocate for people that way um, I've always you know even as a small child I, I idolized Martin Luther King and wanted to do things for social justice um, when I was really little um, my, my mother had to ask my auntie who lived in the mainland to send me a black doll because I wanted to have a black doll. And you couldn't get it here? I couldn't get it. <laughs> there weren't any brown dolls back then. They were all, you know, kind of pale. So um, my auntie sent me a, a doll. And, of course, we named her Leilani, but I cut her hair and it never grew back. And, but, um, so I thought I would go to law school. And then uh, for a couple summers, I hung out with some attorneys, and I decided, nah, I don't think that's for me. As somebody who went to law school, um, you were pretty wise in, in testing the waters a bit first. Uh, it's, it's a lot of debt. Do you regret that you didn't go to law school? No, not one single day. Not one single day. Uh, instead, I, I pursued um, both a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in social work, and that education has served me really well. It's, it's transferable to almost everything imaginable, you know. So my career is probably a good example of that. 
Well, you have, um, I think the mayor said that you had 32 years of experience as, know, a, as a social worker. Isn't it amazing when I look like I'm 29? And you I do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For anybody listening that, that has never met Lori, she does look incredibly young um, to have 32 years of experience under her belt yeah, in social you. work and to, to be a director of, of really anything. So, you know, congratulations thank on you. that. Thank you. Yeah, um, I've... I've I've done this work for a long time. I started my career just like many other social workers doing direct practice with um, children and families and did that for a long time, learned a lot, um, worked in criminal justice, worked in um, you know services directly to children and families, worked with Native Hawaiian families and children, um, foster care, and then um, came home in 2007. I used to live on the Big Island, and I came home in 2007 to work for former Mayor Tavares here in this department. Um, and uh, once my tenure was over, took a little bit of time off and then moved to Oahu to accept an appointment as the state's um, administrator for the Homeless Programs Office. And stayed there and did that work for five years. And um, about it's been a little bit more than three years now that I've been home. Came home to work at the Office on Aging on some wellness programs for the senior citizens, which was awesomely fun. Um, and then Mayor Victorino um, uh, appointed me to become deputy. And, and since then, I've been confirmed as the, the director. So you've worked with a lot of vulnerable groups um, in a lot of difficult circumstances. Um, in your, your past experience, what are, what are some of the, the jobs that you found the most rewarding um, and those that, that you might have found the most challenging? Yeah, I, I, think, I think this has been one of the most rewarding jobs, you know. Uh, there's, um, there's, a, there's a progression, I think, um, with many of my colleagues in social work where they start working on a very micro level with individuals, with families, and um, there's a desire, I think, in all of us to do more. Um, and oftentimes when you work in a very micro setting in social work with one individual or one family, you don't get to see the transformation or the change that might happen with that family until years later. Sometimes we never do. You know, we move to different jobs or families move away. Um, it doesn't always turn out ideal. Um, and we don't often get to see that or experience it. And I think, uh, for me anyway, the, the switch to a more global perspective, a more macro look at, at social services happened, um, you know, when I worked in foster care and I de dealt with big kind of um, policy issues in foster care. And then coming home to work for um, Mayor Tavares and being able to see the entirety of the department and what we do in terms of social services and expand that even more to incorporate the community social service and trying to um, create a real strong safety net for people who are vulnerable. Um, I don't know if you remember, you might be too young, but in 2008 and nine, we had a huge recession. Our mm. budgets were cut, you know, County employees took furloughs. Um, I think donations and, and contributions to nonprofits went down. Everybody sort of suffered. And um, that was a really challenging time to be here in the department because 
our budgets were cut, the, the money that we were funding to nonprofits were cut, and yet we still wanted to have that safety net remain strong. So learning to prioritize how the department did our funding was really very challenging. Um, and I'm happy to see that you know, the department and the community has sort of recovered from that. Um, but economics is cyclical. Yeah. We know that, right? So um, the trend has been going up the last few years. But we know there'll be a time when we'll need to look at that again and make some hard decisions about how funding should happen and what for. So just for some context, you were director during that recession that occurred in 2008 yes. and 2009. So that, that was your during your first yeah, tenure here. That's I can account for a few gray hairs <laughs> from that time. So it, it's interesting that you were director then. Did you see it coming? Um, did, did you have any, any sense that we were about to enter a recession? Yeah, I think we knew that at the time um, Mayor Tavares took office. And um, I think she prepared us as department heads for that. Um, and I think we did, a, we did a good job of preparing the community for that, saying, you know, we're going to have to make some tough choices coming up. And um, we did. And uh, sometimes, you know, different factions of the community might have gone screaming and yelling because uh, everybody who's doing social services thinks what they do is the most important thing. Mm. It's just inherent in the work we do, I think. You know, we all think that that is a critical piece of it. And we, we really, as a department, as a county, we had to prioritize what is it. So if um, one agency is getting grant funded to offer enrichment classes, you know, so you have uh, maybe uh, a portion of the community learning how to do underwater basket weaving <laughs> is not a priority for in, in the time of economic downturn that was so severe. That kind of a service is an enrichment program. It's not, um, it's not a basic primary need. So we had to focus on basic primary needs, food, shelter, safety, uh, in terms of the funding. Which sounds like an incredibly difficult task because back then did you also have, was it seven or eight divisions that you we have We had now? seven at the time. You had yeah, seven right. and now you have eight. Now we have eight. Um, a lot of economists over the past year and a half or so have been saying that, that we should be anticipating another recession. Um, maybe not on the scale that, that we saw in 2008. Um, now, because of the economic success in 2019, uh, previously they were projecting that it would be at the end of 2019. Now they're projecting maybe mid to end 2020, early 2021. Um, do you worry about that? Ha have, have you started preparing for that possibility? Um, I do worry about it. Um, and what we've done is, see, the, the Department of Housing and Human Concerns uh, provides a lot of grant funding to social service providers in the community. I think between this department and the Office of Economic Development, um, we give out millions of dollars. Um, so we, we fund, through our department, we fund services such as youth centers. We fund um, literacy programs. We fund... Um, um, programs like Enlace Hispano at MEO that helps reintegrate Hispanic-speaking people. Um, there's reintegration program for people coming out of incarceration. It, it's just a really broad 
broad uh, funding pattern that goes on. We fund homeless programs, we fund um, um, youth programs that divert kids from substance abuse and that. So it's really, it's, it's a really big net that we've created. So one of the things that we've, um, that we did back then in 2008 and we've done again this year is that we had meetings with the grantee agencies that receive funding through our department and we said, hey, here's what you need to know is that county grant funding is not a guarantee. So if your agency is 100% reliant on county funding, you need to change the way you look at this because it's not a guarantee. Funding is always as available, mm. right? So um, we started planting those seeds again because it's easy to forget. If you get county funding for 12 years in a row and you think, well, I'm going to get county funding again, then it's easy to get a little bit complacent and not necessarily look for other sources of funding. But those agencies have to be um, assertive and aggressive in how they apply for and pursue other sources of funding because if they're solely dependent on the county and we get to that point where we have to make those decisions, is it, is it one of Maslow's um, you know, basic human needs? If it's not, your funding is not prioritized, right? Eventually we'll get to that point where those decisions have to be made. So we've been talking to the grantees and saying, here's what you can do to help your cause, not just in terms of what the county does to fund you, but also in the larger scheme of your own agency's survival. Go find other funding, other funding sources, develop those things. Um, try to create a way that you can have a plan that makes you more self-sufficient so you're not dependent on the county funding. Do you think those, those agencies and, and those groups actually listen to you? I hope they do. Yeah. I hope they do. Um, I don't think that anybody thinks I'm joking. Well, I hope they don't think I'm joking. <laughs> um, because it's the same hard conversation we had, you know, what, 11, 12 years ago. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't joking then. So uh, I, I really do hope that they heed the warning. Um, our grants management division is now um, accepting the, uh, the background paperwork that's needed to open a new year of contracts with these agencies. And part of what we'll be scrutinizing is what, is the other, what are the other sources of funding that, you, that these agencies have pursued? Is there a plan for their self-sufficiency so that if the county cannot fund them, that they have other sources that they might be able to go to in order to, um, in order to maintain their services? Now, just to play devil's advocate a bit, um, there, there's always been a contingent of, of political thinkers who think that government shouldn't really be involved in human services. You know, generally, this is either considered conservatism or libertarianism. Um, you clearly, as somebody who's devoted their work, their lives work to, to social work, don't see it that way. What is, what is the counter argument to to those who think that it's more fiscally responsible to lay off of the social services and allow people to fend for themselves, so to speak. Yeah, um, I understand that. I think, um, you know, I, I, I try really hard, I've tried really hard over the years not to be a bureaucratic muckamuck about um, administering programs. Um, sometimes that can't be helped because, you know, we do work in a bureaucracy, we have to acknowledge that. 
I think um, my aim has always been to make that bureaucracy work better for the work that we do. I'll tell you, Maui County is across the state the most generous county. Other counties, Kauai, even the city and county of Honolulu, don't give out as much grant funding to nonprofits. And there's an argument uh, that I've heard myself saying, you know, um, you guys have the, you guys have the most nonprofits because you give away so much money. And I don't, I have never taken the time to sit there and quantify how many nonprofits we have on Maui and stuff like that. But I do know, in aggregate, our funding has been over the years very generous. I think that I think the part of the reason for that historically has been that we've had uh, good nonprofit partners who actually can deliver the service. Mm. So the county, I think, has been pretty progressive in the way we've looked at social service needs of their community and said, you know, rather than grow the county, the, the, the bureaucracy, to be able to do all of these services that are needed, it's more efficient for us to offer funding to help these agencies do the service and the county manage it in a way that makes more sense. Mm. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, th that is a good economic argument. Um, different restrictions as far as what what those organizations can do and what the county can do. Correct. So, you know, um, recently there's been conversations about uh, whether the county can become a developer of housing, for example. Yes. Yeah. And, and part of, part of uh, you know, what I've said publicly about that is, you know, we can consider that, but having the county be a pro provider in that way as a developer may end up costing us more money because the county, because of we're a jurisdiction in, our, in and of ourselves, we have to follow different uh, rules for procurement, for example, that a uh, private developer may not need to do. They can just go out and find a subcontractor. So long as it's agreeable to the funder, the mm. sub subcontractor follows the rules and whatever. But if we did it as a county, we'd have to procure in a certain way. We'd have to do subcontracting in us, you know what I mean? So there's different um, bureaucratic requirements that we would have to meet that a private developer wouldn't need to meet. And so that's one of the challenges. I mean, I, I don't think that there's been, a, there's been a decision made to say absolutely not, the county won't develop property. But it's one of the considerations that we should, we should take into account when we're going down that road. Mm. In the area of social work and, and your professional experience, um, either on Maui specifically or throughout the state, um, what are some areas where you've seen success and, and growth and, and positive growth um, and areas where you think the state or the county might have failed in the past or, or not lived up to the expectations and how they could have or should have done things differently? Well, I have one topic that is a perfect example of both. Okay. Right? So um, for five years I administered the state's homeless programs um, out of Oahu. Um, so the office that I administered uh, took in the money that was allocated by the legislature for homelessness and we procured for those services and then we issued contracts with agencies all across the state. So it was managing a really big a geographic network of services as well as specific programs. Uh, homelessness is one of those areas where um, it doesn't matter who it is, 
everybody's willing to tell you what their opinion is. <laughs> you know, nobody's shy. Um, once they figure out who you are and what you do, they're perfectly willing to come and tell you what they think. Um, many times it's an opinion without any suggestion or it's a suggestion that's like completely, you know, like let's ship them to Rabbit Island or oh send the homeless <laughs> to Koholave or something, you know, it's kind of like that. Um, but it's something that I got used to having to deal with is people being totally willing to, you know, whether you asked for it or not, they're totally willing to tell you what they think. What are, God, I'm going to ask this question. I might regret it. What are some of the crazier ideas that people have, have given oh. you? See, you chuckled about sending homeless people to Rabbit Island or to Kohalabe, but people have actually said that to me. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and then there's a whole, there's a whole other string of people who say, you know, uh, the homeless are people who got shipped here from the mainland, sent them back, you know, and there's actually been weeks of conversation at the legislature about funding these programs to return people back to the mainland mm. where they came from and, you know, pr uh, barring them from coming. And I said, we live in the 50, we live in the United States. You cannot bar people from coming back. There's no guarantee that they're not going to hop on a plane and come back here and be homeless again. Yeah. There's no guarantee. Well, you know, we got to prevent them from doing it. Well, how do you do that? Right? And I, I, think, I think that here on Maui, we have, a, we have a population of people who are transplanted from the mainland, you know, who kind of, whether it's through family or through other jurisdictions, that's the rumor is that other cities pay for one-way, you know, airfare to Hawaii. Um, and that people come here to be homeless, it's certainly a much nicer environment to be homeless in than St. Paul, Minnesota in yeah. the winter, right? Or Tempe, Arizona in the summer. So I, I understand that. Um, but I think that that's overblown, you know, this idea that people from the mainland are being shipped here by the plane load to be homeless here and that it's our responsibility to take care of them. Um, Homelessness is a very complex problem. It's poverty, it's mental illness, it's housing, it's substance abuse, it's family dynamics, it's uh, cost of living. It's, it's not a one sort of fix for every reason people get homeless. And there are many reasons that people are homeless. I could go, we could, you and I could go out right now and we could find 10 homeless people and we'd hear 10 different reasons that that person is homeless. We might even encounter people living on the beach who say, I'm not homeless, I like living here, you know? And other people who are suffering through being in unsheltered conditions. Um, so it adds to just the complexity of how you get closer to a solution. Yeah. Right? So um, it's really important that the Realtors Association and the county and all of us who are um, working together to address homelessness can do some of these projects together. Last week we had the Landlord Summit, which you guys um, very generously sponsored, and it was a great event meant to encourage landlords to get to know the service providers who are doing work with people who may have been homeless in the past and who need housing, because housing affordable housing is a primary solution to homelessness. Yeah. It's one of the primary solutions to homelessness. 
So when I started working in homelessness, which is during my first tenure as director, I saw a lot of things in the larger system that sort of didn't align. Um, people were going to shelters in cycles. So they'd stay in the shelter, they get released, they'd come back in, and it was just a cycle. And people were remaining homeless for longer and longer and longer periods of time. Um, when I li lived and worked on Oahu, I saw lots of agencies who were cherry picking. So if I have a program and I want to house somebody, I'm going to choose the easiest person to house. Mm. Because then I get a, a little tick mark by my agency name and I get a success story, right? Yeah. What that meant in practical terms is that our chronic homeless population grew bigger and bigger and bigger because they were so easy to overlook. So if I had choices about who I was going to take, I'd take the easy one. Yeah. Right? So the harder ones get are homeless longer, and they're, the issues that led to being homeless go unaddressed for longer and longer periods of time, which is why, you know, Honolulu has the, I think still, the highest per capita rate of chronic homelessness in the nation. Yeah, I think you're right. So what happened was probably around 2011 or 2012 when I first moved to Oahu, there was this, there was this really big push on the national level to change the homeless system. Um, there was a, um, President Obama worked on um, ending veterans homelessness, which actually was achieved in certain cities across the nation uh, where every single homeless vet was housed, mm. right? Um, and a, a push to end homelessness among children and families. Um, and, and the idea was, a, it was a pretty big paradigm shift. It was the idea that we need to tackle those folks who have been homeless the longest and with the, with the highest needs possible, and we need to spend our resources on those people. House them first. You know, don't make substance abuse treatment mandatory before you go into housing. You gotta prove to me that you deserve housing. It flipped that model upside down and said, no, if you put people into housing, they're more likely to be willing to engage in some services. So don't make the services come first. Yeah. Find them. A, agree to get them into housing, put them in housing, give them some stabilization, offer them the services once they're housed. And the success rate for um, programs such as Housing First, which is more than 20 years old now, was developed in New York City for cr chronically homeless people, um, has been like 84%. That means 84% of the people who are, who've been chronically homeless for the longest time with the highest needs have been successfully kept in housing. That's incredible. Yeah, so and it's, a, it's an evidence-based program, Jason. How do, how do they, they rate, like, when, how long they've been in housing? Is because it? they follow them. Okay. Yeah, they follow them. So this is, it, the, the, the model was developed by this guy named Sam Sambaris in New York, and what they did was they, they set up a research-based program so that they collected data along the way. And over the years, they've been able to use that research and that data to show the effectiveness of the program. So it's actually been deemed an evidence-based program. So if we, for example, if we wanted to replicate that program here, and if we did it with fidelity to their model, we could achieve 
the same kind of results, even though we're a continent and an ocean away from New York City. So that 84%, that's not just people that were able to get in the house. That's people that were able to get in the house and stay in the stay, house. It's the actual retention in housing. Okay. And why aren't we replicating that model? We, we have been trying to replicate the model. So when I first moved to um, uh, the homeless programs office, we, we had a million dollars of seed money from the legislature to do housing first. We, we did a pilot program, um, had two, um, two contractors on Oahu. Uh, and we started with Oahu because predominantly that's where the largest problem existed. Um, we, had, we had some feedback and some data from, from the two different contractors about how things should be done. And with that data, we, we um, described and we um, created a program that was more closely aligned with the Housing First model that Sam bought. At the mean, in the meantime, we, we went out, we pursued uh, grant funding from the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration, SAMHSA, um, that that actually funded um, the clinical piece of housing for us, which means that we had a, a team of a multidisciplinary team of clinicians, nurses, um, peer um, interveners, so that once people got placed, the chronically homeless got placed into programs, there was follow up. There was a whole team of people around that to ensure success of that person in housing. Um, so it's, it's a really different way of looking at things because it doesn't mandate the services come first. You don't have to go to, you have to, you have to successfully complete treatment before you can get into housing. It's like, no, yeah. we'll put you in housing and you know, when you're, and, and work on the issues that would impact their tenancy. So instead of saying, you know, hey, you cannot drink anymore it's like the conversation changed. It was about housing. So, mm. hey, you know, Jason, um, remember the last time you went on a bender with your friends, you punched that hole in the wall? That's the kind of stuff that's going to get you evicted. That practical knowledge. Yes, yeah, so you just broke the lease by damaging the, the wall. Right now, we're going to have to work on fixing that. I'm going to charge you an extra $200 to fix that, but you know, can we talk about maybe you cutting down or not punching holes through the wall? You know, so it, the discussion changes to be more focused on that person's uh, um, behavior as a tenant mm. instead of, you know, you're bad. You know, you're, you're drinking is so awful. You know, no wonder you're homeless for 20 years, Jason. Mm. It's a different conversation. Instead of addressing uh, or attacking them for innate flaws, you're, you're suggesting behavior modifications and then you can go after related the to the house related to their their performance as a tenant right? yeah so um, it it changes the it changes the tone of the work I think and it it doesn't shame people you know I, I think people I mean as I have worked with some really 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 sick people you know who are sick because of substance abuse or because of mental illness I'll tell you a story kind of a long story though um, I worked at a building on Mililani Mall in downtown Honolulu, and um, I usually went to work on Saturdays as well, and, and I used to walk from the parking lot to the building, and there was a um, homeless lady who um, was almost every week 
uh, parked by the Department of Taxation office. And uh, I learned from people who worked downtown for a long time that she was known in the community as Maybelline. And I said, well, is that really her name? And one of my friends said, no, that's not her name. But you know, people called her that because she's probably schizophrenic. And um, when she starts hearing voices, she'll use like, um, I don't know, some kind of charcoal or something to paint her face. So she does this tri uh, triangle and an inverted triangle down her cheek. And then she wears these really big um, like fisherman glasses that kind of cover her face. Um, and she pushes a really big cart that's loaded with uh, plastic bags, just loaded. And it's heavy, and you can tell she, you know, she effort to push this cart around. And eventually I made friends with her because um, I knew that we had aggressive outreach services on Oahu, and I wanted her to get hooked up with that. And so I made friends with her, and I talked with her. Her name was, she told me her name was Jean. Um, and I said, you know, I can have somebody come out and, uh, and she was an older lady, or she looked older, right? And so I said, you know, kind of worry about you being alone, you know, out here. And she wouldn't talk a lot, but we exchanged enough words so that she knew who I was, I knew who she was. And I did that for like three years. Um, when we had hurricane warnings and we had um, tsunami warnings, I would walk downtown Honolulu looking for her because um, I was worried about her, right? Uh, she wouldn't give up her cart. I tried so many times to get her into shelter so that she could get stabilized and she wouldn't give up her cart. And I couldn't fit the cart in my car, right? So she always refused shelter. Um, and I used to stop on my way from home. I would, used to stop at Nuwanu Okazuya and pick up food and I'd offer her food every week. She never accepted food from me, ever, in three years. Wow. Uh, she would accept bottled water. So after a while, I stopped buying her food, and I just offered her water. Um, and then one day, it was so funny, one day I was walking by, and I saw her. I said, hi, Jean. She said, hi. So I, I looked at her, and I thought, this lady has lost a lot of weight, you know? It was noticeable. Mm. Um, so I said, hey, you know, I noticed that you kind of got skinny. I said, a lot, you know. And she had, she had these big, um, like, paper towels and masking tape on her shins. She had some kind of injury or something on both her shins. And I noticed she'd had that for a while. So I, I told her, you know, I can, have, I can actually have a doctor come out and find you and take a look at that because I don't want, you, you know, you to get more hurt. So we talked about that. And I said, but I noticed you're getting skinny. Is that on purpose? And she said, nah, I, I stopped eating Chinese food. So I said, oh. I said, how come? She said, they tell me it's chicken, but you can't really know what they're giving you. <laughs> <laughs> she was so funny. She was so funny. She cracked me up, you know. She totally cracked me up. And then, and then I moved, you know. I moved back home to Maui. And I often thought of her. And I, I still have friends on Oahu. And I would say, have you seen Jean around, you know, downtown, any? Right? I would always try to check on her. And, and last fall, um, I, was in, I was on my way. I was on a train on my way to Chicago. And I happened to um, check Facebook, and I saw a post from Hawaii News Now. 
and they'd done a stock documentary and she was one of the people featured in the documentary so um, on Oahu they have a, um, a psychiatrist named Chad Koyanagi who goes out to do outreach with the mentally ill and he had somehow connected with Jean her real name is Jeanette connected with her helped locate a family member her sister they had Dr. Koyanagi and his team helped the sister go to court and get guardianship over her. She, Jean was put in Castle where they stabilized her. They gave her some antipsychotic meds. Um, and they ended up housing her. She'd been homeless for more than 20 years. Wow. You know, her, her sister remembers her having her first sort of mental health issues uh, late teen, early adult age, and then they'd sort of, over the years, kind of drifted apart. But she's in housing still. That's incredible. Isn't that? H have, you, um, have you thought about reaching out to her? Or? I did, because they did a follow-up recently. It was like over the last few months, they did a follow-up on her. Um, and I, I saw her on TV, and she, she looks much better. Like, and she's, she's probably, like, if she's not older than me, she's probably my age. And she looks like she was 70, um, you know, on the street. Yeah. I, it's a hard life, you know. It's a really hard life. And, um, but she was, she was way more coherent. They had her talking on TV, you know. I mean, not, it's not like she's effusive or anything, but she was looking good. And I was like, I cried that day when I saw it on the train I mean literally sobbed because I thought sometimes you know you never get to see yeah what happens um, you you work with somebody and you work with somebody and you work with somebody and you never you never get to see what happens after that but that was like you know I'm not taking any credit at all for that but it was like it just felt so good to know that like she's safer you know, she's healthier. She reconnected with her family, which is like good, super good. So, so overall, would you characterize your view of how Hawaii is addressing homelessness as as positive that that they're doing a good job, that we're making progress, or do you think there's a lot more room for improvement? On both, because I have a perspective of time. Um, I know how things used to be, and I know how they've they've transitioned into what we're doing now. So we're things are much more coordinated now. I think um, we're using um, we're using sa the same measurements to instead of every agency using a different measurement. So let's say there's a let's say Jason is homeless and three agencies encounter him in the course of his day. So one agency might say, well, you know, I specialize in mental illness and this is why they think about Jason. Mm. And the second agency says, well, you know, we, we, we kind of focus on substance abuse and this is what we think of him. And then the third agency might just be, I just do outreach, right? So you have three different assessments of what Jason might need based on whatever tools the three agencies are using. We've transitioned to a time now where we're using a, a, the same assessment tool, Yeah. right? So we're all using the same uh, criteria to measure Jason's vulnerability. With, the, with an uh, accurate and, and consistent 
assessment of vulnerability, we can all talk the same language. So I don't get to, you know, agency number one doesn't get to choose and say, you know what, I think Jason is too hard. I'm gonna go, you know, serve Lori instead because she's easier. It's like the system that's been set up says the person with the highest acuity, meaning they're the most likely to die in the streets if nobody helps them. We will, we will devote our resources to having this person housed to end the chronic homelessness and to offer those services that this person may need, right? And I think, I, I didn't check, I should have checked before I talked to you today, but I think thus far this year, we've housed some, something close to 50 people through that system. Now, if, you, if we were to go home today and ask our neighbors, what do you think about homelessness? Does it look better or worse? Everybody's gonna say it looks worse, mm. right? Because I tell you, Jason, when I grew up, I didn't know people were homeless. Really? You just, uh, we didn't know. They weren't visible? Or? They weren't visible. If they were homeless and living in a car or living in the bushes, they never came out. Or mm. they came out when nobody was looking. We didn't have people camping in, on the sidewalks or building tarp tents and things like that. We didn't have that. I never grew up seeing that. Yeah. Um, and even today, when I go to Oahu, um, I kind of have to, I mean, it's like my eyes just rubberneck over to the encampments because it's, it's just a reminder that uh, of the complexity of the solution, right? So what we consider affordable housing for two, for a, a husband and a wife and a, and a child, for example, is way different from somebody who's collecting social security disability insurance, or maybe somebody who's not even doing that, and who's making their living by collecting bottles and cans and recycling them. So it's, there's resources that we have available, both federal and state and even county resources that can help those folks who have been homeless for a long time and who have these disabilities that um, really impact their lives in a, in a real challenging way. We have resources to put those folks in housing and offer them those services. We do. I'm, I'm absolutely confident that we have those resources. Now, finding the housing, that's, that's the kind of stuff that the Landlord Summit helps us with, right? Yeah. So as a landlord, if you agree to take this person into your home as a tenant and you know well, I can call Family Life Center. If I have, if, you know, if that person is having an issue with the neighbors and the neighbors are calling me to complain, I can call Family Life Center. I don't have to go down there and deal with him myself. Um, you know the rent's gonna pay, be paid on time. And you know that there's somebody there to lend that person support and you don't have to intervene with that. Um, that's, that's a good deal for landlords, you know? Um, yeah. It gives them some support that they wouldn't get if they were renting to some Joe Blow off the street. Yeah, because you don't really know. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, my, my parents had rental property when we were growing up, and the people who were the worst tenants, seriously, no joke, the people who were the worst tenants were the children of my mom and dad's friends. Really? That, they, that they'd known for years, yeah. I mean, they trashed the house. They were horrible. I could see that. You know, and, and there wasn't any there wasn't anybody to call. Who are you gonna call their parents and say, Hey, your kids 
busted up my house. No, you know, and you just fix the house, right? So yeah, so I think there's there's benefit to it, and also I think having the landlords know know more about those support services, it helps build the trust with the so, with the social service network, you know, and is every person who is formerly homeless the best tenant in the world? No. Mm. But neither is anybody else walking off the street. It's a crapshoot. That's true. So, you know, I mean, I think it's, a, it's an opportunity for the, the two sectors to work together. And, and what I heard at the Landlord Summit that was to me the most encouraging thing um, is that landlords want to help. Yeah. You know, they, they see the problem. They want to help. And so this is a way that they really can contribute. They can contribute, but um, maybe reducing their risk factor a little bit more than they would just renting based on a paper and pen application or talking to somebody. There's somebody else you can count on to to be a good case manager. Yeah, to yeah. do that vetting for you. Yeah. And, and also, if there is an issue, you can call them. Right, yeah. right, and get their help because they know that person better than a landlord would. Um, and, and hopefully prevent, you know, big bad things happening in the future. So, so that's great for, for landlords. If they want to get involved, you would say call Family Life Center, call HUD, call the VA, call around or to these call organizations. Call Section 8. Yeah. Section 8. Yeah. Um, Section 8 doesn't come with case management, but, um, you know, there's plenty of families who are working, who are good people, and who need to have that that extra help of a Section 8 voucher. And Section 8 vouchers, those come on time, right? W without any mm. any interaction necessarily with the tenant Yeah, sometimes right? they take a little bit longer because it, you know, like I said, it's a bureaucracy it's a we work program, in. Yeah. And so you have to have, I mean, um, I sign tons of contracts every year. Uh, and so landlords have to know to be patient with some of that at the startup. But afterwards, uh, things should go pretty easily and um, but there is essentially an assurance of getting yes, paid. Yeah. Yes, so long as that tenant maintains their portion of the, of the rent, because the tenants have to pay uh, one-third of, their, of um, their income toward the rent. So however that calculation goes, and the landlord would know all that pursuant to the contract. Yeah. What, um, for anybody that's listening that's, that's not a landlord or, or doesn't have property that they can rent out at a, at a more affordable rate, um, but they want to get involved. They recognize that homelessness is an issue. Everything that falls under your department's purview is an issue. How could the average person or average realtor get involved and help out? Oh, yeah. So they can contact some of the agencies that, that we work with, Family Life Center, um, Kahaleake Ola, um, Mental Health Kokua, so s some of those agencies. So there's an easy way to contact all of them at the same time. And that, and if there, if a landowner or a landlord is wanting to learn more about the homeless service system, they can come to the Maui Homeless Alliance meeting. Happens every third Wednesday of the month at uh, the MEO classroom, and they can meet a lot of these people face to face and learn about that system of care. That, that we're developing and growing here on Maui to, and hopefully coordinating better too. That's the thing that, I, that makes me the most happy is that the services are better coordinated so that we're not overlapping, we're not duplicating, we're not undermining 
everybody's sort of on the same page now, and we're, yeah. we're working really hard to do that. So 12 to about 1.30 is usually the meeting time, but it's a good opportunity to sort of meet all the, all the people who contribute to that system of care. And it's not just homeless providers, you know. We have um, some of our members represent churches, um, some of our members like um, West Maui Taxpayers Association, uh, we have Feed My Sheep, so it's, it's broad. We have people from the DOE, from the VA, as well as from those agencies, from domestic violence, um, the counties represented there. So it's, it's a broad cross-section of, of entities all focused on ending the homelessness in Maui County. We would welcome, we would welcome new people to come. You, you sound like even though you've been doing this for a while and you've seen some of the problems essentially get worse in, in some ways, um, you still sound incredibly hopeful. How do you maintain that, that level of hope um, and positivity that things are going to improve? Um, because they have. Mm. Yeah, they have. Um, I think that the more we educate people, and part of that is having conversations like this, I think, you know, sometimes for a lot of topics, it doesn't just matter about homelessness, but for a lot of topics, affordable housing is another one where um, it's overwhelming if you think about the, the breadth of it, right? You could easily get just over, like, God, we need 15,000 units by 2025, and we're never going to get there. Um, but my, my strategy is, okay, let's not be in denial. Let, let's deal with what really is, yeah? what we know. What is the best information we know about this? And then let's start making a plan about how to chip away at it. Because in two weeks from now, in two months from now, in two years from now, in 20 years from now, if we don't do something, the issue is probably going to be worse. Mm. Likelihood it's not going to be better. So it's, I think, that commitment to knowing that change is possible, as complicated as it might be, there's ways to galvanize resources. There's ways to galvanize, what's here? Public and political will. You know, so we can, we can spend all of our time just yapping about this and complaining and bemoaning and oh, it's never going to get better. We, we need to we need to work together. So let's look at what we can agree on. Let's start working on that. Now there's going to be um, probably thousands of different opinions about what we need to do first and what we need to do second. And we'll determine those along the way. But not everybody's going to be pleased with the, with the course that's charted. Not everybody is. I cannot wait for 100% consensus. Yeah. I'm not willing to do that because there's never going to be 100% consensus about these tough issues because they're not easy. They're complicated issues. They're multifaceted. And... People are going to have different opinions about them, but we have to get to a point where we can get the most people on the train and the train moving in that direction, right, and start chipping away at this. If we don't do that, we're, we're going to be in the same mode we are. We've been in the past where we oh, 
want so bad, you know. We need to get moving. And I think that that's, um, I think there is the will to do that. I think there's still plenty of um, differing opinions. Uh, but I think that the, the mayor has been really clear, you know. The departments are coming from different perspectives about developing housing. Everybody has a different perspective about certain things. Uh, but we want to focus on, on making housing happen so that people have some place to live. And, uh, you know, I think people my age and older, we have these wishes that our children can afford to come home. You know, they're all on the mainland now that they can come home and live here. And uh, it's not just a housing issue, it's an economic issue, right? Because if they want to buy a house and they could afford to buy a house, they got to be working at a job that allows them to afford that house, right? It's not just coming home to live in a house. Yeah, you need to it, be you able need to pay for your house. Correct, yeah. correct. So, you know, it's like, it, it sort of like filters down into individually, uh, you know, if, if this family wants to re really become homeowners, right? And you don't make a whole lot of money, but you become a homeowner. I mean, you want to become a homeowner. Then somebody needs to sit with you and tell you, um, don't lease a new car or a new truck because it's going to screw up your credit and you're not going to be able to get a mortgage. It's going to be hard enough as it is. So don't do that. You know, live a little while longer with a 10-year-old car, right? Drive the 10-year-old car for a little while longer so that you get over this and you can manage the payment. I, it's so interesting you bring that up. I, my wife and I were having a similar discussion where we were talking about the folks that we know who have credit card debt or student loan debt and they're talking about their dream of buying a house someday and then they go and they, they get a brand new Toyota Tacoma that they're going to be paying payments yeah. on for years and years to come. Yeah. Might mess up their credit, yeah. but at least they look cool. Yeah. Um, which. Yeah, so it's... I don't know if it's worth it. You know, the mayor tells... Um, if you hang around with the mayor long enough, he'll tell you this story about when he first got married and how he and Mrs. Victorino just kind of scraped by. And So when he talks about attainable housing, right, it, it, it means that, uh, that a family would do what they needed to do in order to be able to buy that house, right? So if it's, um, you know, restricting their going out to dinner or restricting how many times they go to the movies, you know, do Netflix instead or rent a movie from Safeway or whatever instead of going to the movies and paying $10 a piece and $40 for popcorn, you know, that, that they chose to do that in order to be able to get to that end goal of being able to afford that mortgage, right? So it's, uh, we were just talking about this yesterday, it's not just the mortgage payment that people have to be concerned about as homeowners, but you got to have money in the kitty to pay for repairs. Oh yeah. You know, something's going to break. Something always breaks. Right? There's always repairs to be made. Right. So you got to do the repair and maintenance thing. You got to pay property taxes. You got to pay homeowners fees, right? All those things sort of have to get get um, weighed into that equation in order to be able to buy a house and keep that house because to me the saddest thing is you go all out and you buy a house and you can't maintain it and then you end up losing it and it's it's a huge it's a huge impact on your on your credit 
you credit, right? A house is a dream, too. You know? I mean, it's not only a financial impact on, on your credit, but it's also um, having a home, whether you're renting yeah. or owning, but particularly when you're a homeowner, it's your, your dream. For yeah. a lot of people, it's a life goal. Yeah. Um, and when that doesn't work out, you're absolutely right, it's devastating. Yeah. And um, I mean, I, I wouldn't want any family, young or old, to lose that, that home if they were able to work hard and get it, right? So I think we have to have housing at all kinds of different ranges. You know, we have to have housing that people purchase, but we also have to have rental housing that's affordable to people who maybe at this point in their life don't want to buy a house. Because there's plenty of people who don't want to buy a house. Absolutely. Um, you know, who are, you know, I have, I know a lady who's in her 70s and has been a renter for all of her working life. And she's like, I don't want to buy a house. Why would I want to buy a house? I don't want to, you know. I mean, and, and that's okay too, right? But we still need housing for folks who are like that, right? Well, we, we as realtors, we want everybody to buy a house. We of want, course. We want, <laughs> we want home ownership for everybody. But we do understand that that is not a, a practical goal. Um, because for a lot of people, just that dream of, of finding a place that you can rent that's secure, um, we want to support people to get that, that dream as well. Yeah. So I'm, I'm completely on board with everything you have to say. I've, I've really enjoyed this. Yeah, I've enjoyed um, talking with you too. Thanks for listening to all my stories. Of course. I'm, I'm going to have to schedule a follow-up <laughs> interview because I feel like this isn't enough time. But I want to ask you a few questions just to wrap up. Okay. Uh, this is more of just... A cool down. Let's, okay. let's think of it that way. Um, what book would you recommend? Mm. I've had a book on, um, on my bookshelf, uh, my nightstand. Well, okay, so me, sorry, off, off track again. I usually read a couple different books at a time. So I like the e-readers so that I, can, I don't have to carry three I'm the books, same way. especially when I travel. Um, it's really good because I like to do a nonfiction and then I'll do a fiction and then I'll do something different. But one of the books that I've had on my nightstand for a long time is called Learn to Pray. And it's a, it's a picture book. And it talks about the act of praying and, and its significance and its symbolism in many different cultures. So I like that book. All right. That's, that's a good recommendation. Are you a religious person yourself? No, or? I'm not religious. Oh. <laughs> no, I'm not religious, but I'm a very spiritual person, but I'm not religious, you know. So Learn to pray. Yeah, it's really an interesting book. Outstanding. Um, what is guaranteed to make you smile? Uh, another smile. <laughs> another smile, yeah. I like, um, you know, people... People who sort of know me but maybe don't know me think that I'm really outgoing. I'm actually very shy. It takes a lot of energy for me to be, this is easy, one-on-one -on -one with you is easy, but being in big groups is, is harder for me because I'm not really a social animal. I'm really happy being at home reading the Learn to Pray book. Um, so it's like, it's nice to see a smile. Well, I'm going to smile every time I see you Thank now. you. Just, I will, too. Just to spark that. Um, what goal do you have that you haven't achieved yet? Uh, oh, good question. Um, I think 
you know, professionally, one of the things that I want to do is I really one of one of the things that I've, I wanted to do in accepting this job is I really want to make this department the best it can be. Um, I I'm really blessed because I work with some really incredible, smart, energetic people, and people who are really dedicated to doing their piece of the big puzzle. And I think um, one of my goals during this tenure is to really be uh, as good a leader as I can to further the cause of the department. Because they get very little acknowledgement. They sort of do their work in, in quiet, which is something that I really like and I appreciate, the humility of the people who work here. Um, but I want to make sure they get credit for that. What is something that you've learned recently? Um, hmm. Well, you know, I listen to NPR on the drive-in every morning, and usually in the afternoon. Um, but I learned this morning, actually, that um, there's a, there's a, I forget what it's called, um, the United States broadcasts over the radio to different countries using, I mean, in their own languages, um, news about international things, just to keep people who are, um, tend to be in re very restricted information environments, um, news that they can use. And so there's a, I don't remember what the name of the agency is, but they recently went into these um, refugee camps in, um, um, to talk to Rohingya mm. uh, refugees in Bangladesh, you know they they got these folks got chased out uh, in in Myanmar, and so they're doing broadcasts in the Rohingya language, to, and and they're they're um, they've hired uh, there's a word for it, but they've hired some like underground reporters within the. Uh, refugee camps to create stories about their experiences there. I thought that was fascinating. Um, I learned a lot from Hawaii Public Radio. Yeah, they're great. Yeah, I, I love that. And it's, um, I just thought, you know, it, that environment is such that I can't imagine mm. what that's like, you know, to, to have lived in Myanmar for generations and to be forced out because of your religion and to be just left in Bangladesh. Like Bangladesh is not a wealthy country. Yeah. Like they don't have like primo accommodations for these refugees, right? And they're just there. And they've been forgotten about, I think. You know, but I think about stuff like that. That is good stuff to think about. I mean, it, it's sad, yeah. certainly, um, yeah. but it, I, that's one of the things that makes me proud of America, uh, that we, we have programs where we're helping people with news, and we send teachers out, and we send doctors yeah. out, and we send support to these yeah. refugee camps. Yeah. Um, I, my past experience, I was, I was a Peace Corps volunteer myself. Oh, I wanted to do that yeah, as a young I kid. I highly recommend it. Yeah, you still can. Cool. I, think, uh, I think Jimmy Carter's mom did it after she had already retired, um, maybe even after he Lillian. was president. Yeah. Ah. Um, so, so it's never, never too late to, to join the Peace Corps. I highly recommend it. But that is programs like that, that that our country runs. Those are the things that I'm most proud of. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, 
I'm taking away the spotlight from you a little bit, but no. that's what makes America great. Yeah. You know, yeah. we don't we don't um, we don't necessarily need to be made great again. It's it's our kindness to others that that really is our greatness. Yeah. Um, and so you're supporting that on a local level, um, and I love that that the thing that you wanted to share with me that you recently learned was about more American kindness abroad. Uh, and one final question for you. What one piece of advice would you give to anyone listening? Uh, I think the advice that I would give is kind of like how I try to operate in the world, and that is uh, to work with others. Um, you know, to try and suppress my ego so that I can work with others, that I listen to them, that I treat people respectfully. Um, because, you know, after so many years in social work, and which involves also political life, it's inescapable, the intersection between this policy work at the department and, and, and political life. Um, what I've learned is you never do things by yourself. Never. You know, and there's, I mean, there's lots of people who think, I, 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 um, but it's not, it's not. Um, so we, we have to work with each other. You know, you don't, get, you don't get from point A to point B all by yourself. So we can, you know, so long as we're moving in the same direction and we can agree on certain things, I think it's a good thing to work with others and do it cooperatively, do it collaboratively and um, share the success with other people because it is it's joint it's always joint it's never about one person ever yeah ever I, I agree with you completely this notion of of the individual the self-made man it's it's sort of a myth yeah um, and it's any a bad success, myth it's a terrible myth <laughs> but but any success that that we have as a society or even as individuals um, really does come down to that collaboration and teamwork yeah. so yeah Excellent advice. Yeah. I love it. I have loved this interview. Thank you so much for Thank taking the time. Thank you for coming. And um, we'll have to do this again. Sometime. Okay. It's a date. All right.